I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. The cascade of fire kept pouring forth unabated. I noticed that I was sitting on the floor, curled up under the window. I decided that since I had no way of knowing where the bullet that was going to land in my chest would come from, I might as well stretch out on my bed and learn how to sleep while bullets were flying. After all, I'd endured indescribably harsh conditions before. I'd been obliged to sleep in places haunted by cold, homesickness and grey phantoms, and I'd taught myself to adjust to whatever suffering happened to surround me. Once I'd even trained myself to sleep, with a bright electric lamp shining in my face. And now I'd have to learn to sleep on a battlefield. That was a passage from the opening of Khada Saman's Beirut Nightmares, which was originally published in Arabic in 1976. Set at the height of the Lebanese Civil War, this autobiographical novel concerns two weeks in the life of a journalist and writer living at the heart of the war zone. With the conflict raging outside and snipers on every corner, she is unable to leave her flat. The horror of the waking world soon finds its way into the dreamscape, where disembodied limbs roam the flaming streets and mannequins come to life. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this modern classic of Arabic literature. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 15 of Shared's Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks, Sam. Glad to hear it. Uh, we're talking about a novel today called Beirut Nightmares by a, a Syrian female author named Khada Saman. I recently asked someone about the pronunciation of this, this first name, Rob, because I wasn't sure if it was like a hard G, but luckily I have a friend who teaches Persian literature and he knows he knows some Arabic as well, so he helped me out with that. I think it's Khada. Ah, oh, great. Yeah, I had no idea, actually, so that's very, that's very useful. Yeah, um, so it's originally published in Arabic, and we've got a translation by Nancy Roberts. Um, how did you feel about reading this, Rob? Was it an enjoyable one for you? Yeah, I did really enjoy it. I was really engrossed, kind of from the off. There's some, you know, some unexpected turns to it, and um, by the end of it, I don't know. I felt slightly conflicted, but overall, I really, really enjoyed reading it. Definitely. What about you? I, I have quite mixed feelings about it. Just the experience of reading it. There are things I really love, and then others that I find either troubling or maybe even a bit uh, long-winded and uninteresting. It's a long book, isn't it? It's about 400 pages. Yeah, definitely. And it's certainly, it's quite dense and, and maybe not always the easiest to read because of obviously the subject matter and also stylistically. I think maybe just because it, it all occurs in this single space, it's just set in a in a flat in Beirut that gradually disintegrates around the narrator. So there's an inevitable amount of monotony there which maybe is inescapable i mean perhaps later we can think about some of the intentions behind that but where the book really shines for me is in the the nightmares of the book's title the core narrative is sort of interrupted by these fantastical vignettes or short stories where the the book shifts focus and we enter a world of unreality where very strange things are happening you know figures from the narrator's past will return from the dead or there's an a scene with mannequins in a shop windows that suddenly come alive and in these nightmares the novel's scope kind of widens quite a lot and takes us outside of this everyday 
experience of of the war that's where i felt the book was at its most exciting to read yeah i definitely agree that they pull the narrative through i think it's worth also pointing out that although we're talking about these fantastical sections as the nightmares each each chapter is actually a nightmare so we you know we go from nightmare one to nightmare two nightmare three and so on and i think it's also i don't know for me anyway i don't know if you felt the same but there's something instantly quite oppressive about reading it turning a page and seeing nightmare three nightmare four nightmare five the nightmares that are truly night although even saying that i feel like i don't agree with it but the the nightmares that are nightmares as we conventionally understand them you know these these dreamlike sequences feel really necessary to stop the reader going perhaps quite as mad as these people locked away in their houses unable to move because of the civil war that rages around them but it also kind of like shines a a broader light on the events and allows us to perhaps understand things beyond the scope of this kind of very domestic action. I realise that those criticisms I'm making might seem a bit callous or something or, or, or trivial, you know, when just consider the the book as a as a sort of literary object. Those criticisms kind of fade a little bit when you think about the extreme conditions, truly nightmarish conditions under which the book was written. I don't know if you read about this, Rob, but it's heavily autobiographical, I think. I was reading a book by Miriam Cook called War's Other Voices about a group of female Arab writers who the the author kind of places together in a sort of school. She writes about how Khada Saman had witnessed all these aspects of the war and, you know, she was very close to this notorious battle of the hotels in uh, October and November 1975 and says that she wrote this novel almost in a trance working from 5am to 7pm every day for two months her house was literally under siege and her library really did burn down along with lots of her unpublished writings and just thinking about that perhaps makes me consider the book in a different light and not just think about it in in terms of structure and how well put together it is but as as a really kind of urgent statement maybe maybe to think about it in purely aesthetic terms is a sort of arbitrary or unfeeling exercise some somehow but I, I just I needed to be honest about my experience of reading it somehow yeah I think you're right I mean definitely you know there's the sense as we progress further through the book and the narrator is telling us about sort of the desperate attempts to save the manuscript of you know from fire from the battles that are raging and this manuscript is the beginnings of Beirut nightmares so we do very much feel that we're on the border of uh, something autobiographical and something fiction but at the end of the day we do have a book in front of us and whilst we might slightly amend our criticism based on the context we we have to read it as a book right at the same time and there are things that we're going to feel about it which i think are, are perfectly valid you know there's experiences in there which with any luck we'll, ne- we'll never have to experience and so it makes it very difficult to talk about in some ways but at the same time i guess it's necessary for us to address it you know she's definitely put it out there as a a, a work of fiction to be spoken about and read and prompt some kind of thought i guess that's what we're doing here so we can go forward without worrying too much hopefully. yeah you're right i think that's the that's the really key difference isn't it publishing this as a as a novel and you know not as a sort of documentary recording of of these events that's not to say that i think it's a bad book at all uh, i think there's lots and lots to recommend in here it's just sometimes it was uh, slightly trying to read Father Saman is born in 1942 in Damascus in Syria um, and she's a member of quite a prominent conservative family. Her father was dean of the faculty of law at the University of Damascus and later became uh, Syria's minister of education and she's also remotely related to a poet who's considered to be Syria's national poet. Uh, his name is Nizar Kabani, apparently a very, very crucial figure in, in Syrian literature and also proponent of Arab nationalism. Her mother dies when she when she's very young, I think. She was raised by her grandmother and her father and, and seems to have had a really close relationship with her father. He kind of instilled in her real drive for, for education and particularly in, in terms of literature 
literature. So a reverence for classical Arabic literature and even made her memorize the, the Quran from a young age. So it's clearly a sort of intellectual household that, that she comes from. At university in Damascus, she, she studies first medicine and then goes on to get a degree in English literature and later goes to the American University in Beirut and completes uh, an MA on the Theatre of the Absurd, which I, th- I thought was quite an interesting correlation there. Do you recognise in this book some aspects of, of uh, surrealism or, or the absurd, Rob? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's. I mean, obviously, there's a, a huge focus on the on the complete absurdity of the world that's going on around her, despite its mortal seriousness. There's a definite irreverence to every aspect of it, whether that's the you know the the political tensions or the weirdly domestic aspirations of those that are left inside the house. And the whole thing is at points almost farcical. There's a very dark comedy to it for sure but I was also thinking of just the fact that it it's so concerned with the nightmare or or dream logic you know it made me think of surrealism you know really strongly related to the to the absurd and this idea of automatism you know where you relinquish conscious control of of an artwork maybe to to have the nocturnal underbelly of of reality so prominent in this book might be an example of that yeah i've read in some other biographical material that you know it's almost an obsession of with nightmares and with dreams for saman and that it appears very heavily in beirut 75 and that it, it plays a very large part in that so it seems like a really valid point that that's perhaps one one influence for, for this kind of nocturnal uh, subconscious unconscious imaginings after completing that ma she goes to london uh, she spent some time in, in london in the mid-1960s and nancy roberts notes in her introduction that while she's there she's sentenced in absentia to three months imprisonment for failing to ask official permission to leave Syria and I don't believe or at least I couldn't find any information that suggested she ever went back to Syria. No I think I've read that explicitly she never returned. It's difficult for me to understand the explicitly Syrian aspects of her political beliefs um, i wonder what it what it means for her to be a, a syrian in in beirut during this conflict or if she fully adopted a sort of lebanese identity i'm not sure did you find anything about that well i read online yeah there's a good i think it's called something like a autobiographical reading of beirut 75 which had some really interesting autobiography i'll get the link so we can put it at the end which is just an online essay but it's very informative and it mentioned that having spent time in Europe she returned to Beirut you know that she she felt she needed to be in an Arab country that was really important but you know almost didn't matter which one so I imagine from that that perhaps there's this kind of Arab nationalism or something that she feels very part of but perhaps that was more with the the difference between Europe and these kind of more closely aligned Arab countries. Well I I was wondering if it's perhaps a case of Lebanon being one of the more progressive nations in that region in that region yeah that's exactly what i was gonna say yeah that she she talks about it having more oxygen in in beirut there's space to breathe so i think it it still holds for her like a certain arab identity but affords her the freedom to be able to write and and move and travel uh, which are things that are incredibly important to her it says in this essay it says very explicitly and i think it may be a quote from her that whilst many people in beirut at that time with the means chose to to leave for europe or for other countries nearby she was very specific in her desire to to stay in beirut you know she as you've said experienced many of the things that we read about in this book queuing queuing up to get water to be able to drink and the the kind of danger implicit in something as simple as going out to buy a loaf of bread and for her apparently that was that was very important to be part of that so i assume there must be like a very strong bond with lebanon or with with beirut specifically for her to have felt that kind of desire to to stay and do i guess what she could to help or, or be part of something better she's a very prolific writer most of her work is still not translated into into English. She's referred to by uh, Evelyn Akkad in a review I read of the, the Square Moon, which is a collection of supernatural tales by Khaled Saman, and one which I'd really like to read. Well, she calls her the most productive woman writer in the Arab world, 
having completed at least 31 books in the course of her career, and they've been translated into 10 languages. She founded her own publishing house and experimented with different forms, particularly comedy and satire that are apparently very uncommon among amongst uh, female writers in, in the Arab world. But along with that very prolific nature, she's also been kind of criticised for a, a lack of cohesion. Miriam Cook, this American critic, she refers to Saman's work as a kind of jumbled output that perhaps there's slightly too much of it or it lacks focus somehow. That almost rang true to me in terms of the, the book itself. I felt a little bit like it, it could have been cut down somewhat. You know, it's always difficult to make those kind of claims. Maybe this is exactly how she had to express something exactly how long it needed to be but i think what we probably can't ignore is just how much of a a force she is it's a cultural environment that i don't quite understand and i imagine even though perhaps syria and lebanon were towards the more progressive end of the spectrum in the mid 20th century in terms of the the whole region it certainly seems like she had to fight against a certain deep conservatism and a fair degree of misogyny in in her career and there's a very sort of outspoken quality to to her writing that's really palpable on the page don't you think definitely definitely i mean i read that she's actually not really published in the arid world beyond lebanon but her her readership is huge so there's a kind of a censorship or like an unsuccessful censorship that you know she's incredibly well read and and revered throughout a number of countries but actually it's only it's only in Lebanon that she's actually published and yeah that there's you know certainly in her personal life I think there was she was understood at one point as a as a fallen woman when her father had died and before she was married so it was you know, this idea that she could only possibly be you know of, of value or worthwhile with some relation to a to a man and it's definitely something that comes through in the text the narrator describes herself as um, within that kind of spectrum of the world that she lives in she describes herself as the you know the male of the family she has to kind of look after her brother and the the downstairs neighbor amin is the traditional asian woman you know this is his personality type so yes it certainly shines through in the character as well i think i read a little section about her in the critical guide to Arab women writers and it talks about how she contributed really heavily to the emergence of of the figure of the the new woman in Arabic literature and that apparently before the 1970s a character that could be both female and socially and economically independent were just not represented at all. It's emphasized quite strongly in in Beirut Nightmares I think that she earns her living by her pen as it were and that she provides her own source of income uh, through intellectual activity and so on it's quite pronounced i think yeah absolutely and even the fact that you know the the house that she spends most of the book in is is hers that she's inherited it from her father and i think even if i understand correctly that even the notion of inheritance is is quite often something that women can't have you know that it will always be passed from some father to son or to a male relative and so this idea that yeah that it's that it's her house that it doesn't belong to some kind of like male relative or husband or or partner feels really important that it's her books it's her house what happens to these in in the book is obviously something else altogether but the fact that they are hers i think is quite easy to to not question for us but perhaps for uh, a woman living in in Lebanon in the seventies. This would have been, you know, understood very differently. Do you think that she seems disapproved of the character, the narrator of the the novel, seems disapproved of by other figures within the book? It's hard to tell, isn't it? I think from the neighbours downstairs, who I guess are the primary characters we meet, there is a disapproval, but perhaps not along those lines. They perhaps disagree slightly to her politics and and the fact that she, other than her books has no real interest in material possessions, whereas they're very much kind of clinging to these heirlooms and they're the things, and and the house itself, and they're the things that they're they're most worried about. The army officers who who eventually help to remove her from the house refer to her being worried about uh, a bag she's left behind, um, imagining that that, um, she's interested in it for fashion purposes rather than the fact that it contains this really important piece of writing that she's been working on 
So there is a slight dismissal there, I suppose. But no, I didn't find any kind of outright misogyny represented so much in the book, necessarily. And perhaps this is, in a way, even more powerful, because it's a society either imagined or, or existing where actually it goes unquestioned that that is the life of a, of a woman. The thing that hit me first when reading the book was these kind of chapter headings, if you will, of nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. And in a way, that's quite horrific. But then in another way, it also creates this strange rhythm that after a while becomes not not quite boring, but uh, very formulaic. And I think this is, you know, there's other elements of the book that again and again we read about her attempting to go to sleep amongst the bombs and you know we read about her going upstairs and downstairs and upstairs again and you know there's a there's a very small scope for action and it feels very deliberate in that actually despite the the horror really what she does fantastically well I think and this is is picks out quite how soul-destroyingly boring this can be despite fearing for your life your everyday life the things that you take for granted is is already destroyed and actually that leaves you with a a very small scope for what you might call living uh and that in itself is is really really boring and there's a real kind of banality she's kind of very honest one of the things done so well in in the book is that it does feel like there's a, a real honesty there sometimes to the point where it put me put me off the main character slightly, but there's there's a, a bravery in that honesty, and through that honesty, I think we we really experience some of this boredom, like the the kind of desire for for anything, and the thought that you might be able to just go outside and and look at some flowers. Or um, I feel like this the the thing of like a banality of evil, the idea that actually the in a in a war, any kind of modern warfare that actually an awful lot of the terror and the, the horrors that are perpetrated are almost bureaucratic. That's something that we, we kind of know about. And as difficult it is, is to imagine what that would be to experience, we can accept it. Um, but what she adds to that is the, the banality of the experience as well, that not only is it banal to be the person ordering the soldiers, but it's banal to be at the, the other end of the rifle, if you will. <laughs> like, I feel like... It's actually the kind of thing that you could um, open the book on any page and find, well, not any page, but on many pages and find an example of that. I'm particularly thinking about the way that war and its and its accompanying dreariness and tedium is, is sort of the book's subject and the book's task alongside describing these sort of nightmarish visions. And we can think about the, the connection between between these two aspects of it later perhaps but one of its tasks was to describe the the depths to which a sense of normality can can be forcibly pushed you know that there, there are almost successive steps down to which the idea of normality can be taken at first the for example the the frequent gunfire is something that disturbs the narrator's sleep um but she she quite frequently explores the idea of becoming inured to to those sounds of gunfire and ex- and explosions it seems like subsequent catastrophes or subsequent dangers also become subsumed into into a new normality so at first she creeps around the house trying to avoid the possibility of a of a gunshot of a of a bullet ricocheting off something in her home and and killing her but when she realizes that there is is in fact no escape because of how it could it could attack her at any angle whatsoever she soon stops kind of crouching around and walking with any kind of caution and and just accepts this almost moribund state as something that is is just the new the new reality and there's a the kind of gradual stripping away of what the narrator initially considered to be necessities until there's almost nothing left whatsoever and all the windows have been smashed and there's a, an unexploded rocket yeah well i was going to say that there's also the um the shrinking or the the reduction of the physical space where it starts with the the two flats hers and the neighbors and then also this kind of outside space that she can sneak into in the night and then her flat is destroyed and she can't really go outside for fear of the sniper. And then, yeah, as you say, this unexploded rocket arrives in one of the rooms. And so then they have to then all congregate in a single room and the space just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But whereas in 
another book I think this would have kind of added to a sense of claustrophobia. Weirdly, there's not, for me anyway, uh, a sense of claustrophobia in the book. The fear is that of, uh, there's certainly like a hunger and a, a, like a desire for something more, whether that's more food or, or the ability to, to move freely. Yeah, it's about the, the boredom of being confined to, to one room with nothing to do. I think at one point she talks about attempting to go to sleep very early because they have no electric light anymore, but also to kind of, because there's just nothing to do in the days, so inevitably just find yourself getting into bed earlier and earlier and so yeah it seems like a very sort of depressed mode of existence rather than the paranoid fear that would come with claustrophobia it's not exactly panic or any an an excited emotional state it's something much more dejected much more a sense of stripping away of possibilities desires and hopes this is sort of what i was referring to when we began talking about this that that does have its have its impact on the the reader's experience somehow it seems like an, an incredibly important thing to discuss but at times it's difficult to sustain interest when when boredom or banality is is the very theme i don't know if did did you find that kind of jarring i mean it's, it's something that it's been explored obviously before in literature and you know in something like Madame Bovary or even the Magic Mountain this monotony that uh, is the focus of both of those books but I found it particularly bare particularly stark in this in this book yeah I definitely experienced it maybe not to the to the same extent she does a really good job of attempting to capture that experience and you know however far it might be away from our current lives to kind of give us a glimpse into it and as it happens, that's uh, a life that is shaped an awful lot by <laughs> by boredom. And so, yeah, I think it, it can make it a bit tricky to read at times. And I think it also almost comes out in the um, the kind of formal aspect of the text itself. It's, I really noticed it when I was writing writing out quotes that I wanted to use today. Some of the sentences seem to contain so many unnecessary clauses. And um, it's not that the text is kind of flabby. But it's and again, it's very difficult saying this whilst reading a translation. But there's a lengthy, almost disjointedness sometimes to to some of the phrasing, which makes it as a reader, you're kind of like really willing the sentence to kind of get, get to the point. And I feel that for me, whether this is deliberate or not, I don't know. But that really echoes the experience of kind of. I think she even says it at points that almost willing something to happen even if it's terrible because you know the points where the gun gunshots or the the explosions stop are the worst because you know there's this sense of dread and that's almost like with the, some of these sentences you're reading and reading and reading and you're like oh, okay I need to you know I want to get to the point of this, this sentence and I think you know either this is um, something that's come out of the translation or it's quite a clever formal conceit that goes on I'm not too sure did you have any thoughts about the about that or or the kind of nature of the translation well um i i wouldn't really like to comment on the translation i because I, I can't really do so with any any authority mm. but in terms of just thinking about it as though it were english for a moment it feels slightly flat or tone deaf mm. at times slightly more excitable than than i would expect i mean there are sort of preponderance of exclamation marks here where they don't yeah. seem to belong <laughs> yeah um, absolutely <laughs> But uh, but thinking about it, maybe just stylistically, I think the emptiness or the plainness of the prose in those uh, in the sort of diurnal aspect of the the novel, you know, what's going on uh, in the daytime, mm. uh, is thrown into really sharp relief by the richness of, of those visions. I think, yeah, when the, the the language comes alive very noticeably, I think uh, becomes richer and stranger and uh, far more interesting to read. Maybe that is a very intentional tactic to keep us at plainness and simplicity to the prose for the most part until we descend to that nocturnal world but i did i did get the feeling perhaps that the the translation felt more serviceable than poetic i don't know but does that sound really unfair or no i i certainly felt the same and yeah of course it's it's impossible to say without being able to read the original how you know because 
it could be that that's the nature of the text and the, the translation has been incredibly true to it. So we can only guess at, at whether it's intentional or not. But I certainly felt that at times. But I also completely agree that there is this sudden shift in register or when these nightmares, which are kind of like more or less removed from the, the kind of main narrative arc, come into to play, there's, it does change things. And I think without them, the, the book would be almost impossible to read. Yeah. So, and now obviously, you know, the book would never have existed without them they are the nightmares of the Beirut nightmares but um, I would absolutely agree with how the, how the book kind of shifts at those points I saw them after they had drunk from the spring poisoned with the powder of madness I saw them cutting off the ears of the newspaper vendor who used to stand in front of our house every morning in order to be able to pay his school fees every evening I saw ears being severed and cut to pieces in every darkened corner of the city. I saw fire and knives inscribing figures on people's bodies, figures which were supposedly religious symbols. What god is this who is pleased to have his name pounded with nails into people's skulls and burned onto the bodies of his worshippers with the flame of a soldering iron? Go to the churches, go to the mosques and to the seashore, travel to the depths of the cosmos and ask him whether he is pleased. I saw ears piling up in the streets, in front of the doors until they blocked them off like snowdrifts in the winter. I saw gouged out eyes floating on top of the cup of coffee I was preparing. I saw remains of dismembered bodies pouring into the streets and accumulating in mounds that towered higher than rubbish heaps. I saw severed legs running away without their bodies and disconnected forearms waving along the roads bearing white flags and stretching out their hands in search of someone to come to their rescue. I saw fingers floating through the empty streets and pointing accusingly at their executioners. I saw men whose blood had been drawn from their veins so that it could be given to others running along as bluish corpses. I saw others who had been decapitated scurrying down the pavements of this grieving homeland of ours in search of their heads which had been cut off on some dark night. I saw heads whose features had been erased, so severely had they been tortured, heads which had been cut off and were now floating on a sea of blood and darkness in search of their tongues, which had been extracted with pincers. I saw them emerging from the ovens of torture and fire, running along with their bodies in flames and reeking of burnt flesh. I saw the city being transformed into a witch's cauldron. The cauldron and all it contained boiled and boiled and spun around and around in a whirlpool of bloody shrieks. Meanwhile bullets pierced through every mouth that wished to utter anything contrary to the logic of the bullets themselves. I saw the poor dying, the innocent poor alone. As for their butchers, they had fled from the city of nightmares and madness to the cabarets of Paris. London and Geneva. I think maybe this could be a, a strange claim to make, Robin. You, <laughs> th- you see what <laughs> see what you think, and tell me if I'm you know barking up the wrong tree completely. But I I thought it was quite rare or strange to find the combination of very realistic depictions of war, you know, or extreme political realities sort of sitting alongside the fantastic or the supernatural, or even it gets close to something like horror, to my mind, uh, that there seems to be some sort of inherent dissonance between those two things. I mean, I have some notion of, of, of why, but do you think that that's, is that true? Does that sound, does that ring true for you somehow? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I wonder, this is perhaps what you were going to say, that there's this idea that these events are so horrific that in and of themselves in a kind of like historical reality, that to move to the kind of realm of the horror story or um, to something fantastical does it a disservice because it's unnecessary and I think this book perhaps proves that that's not true that it adds something that the kind of historical details no matter how awful at least in the realm of of fiction the most profoundly horrible bits where where you really feel like you get a glimpse of the awfulness of the situation I think yeah come in these nightmares rather than the 
kind of factual account, more or less factual account of, of life under siege. So, yeah, no, I think I definitely agree. Yeah, I mean, I just I just found myself wondering why uh, certain cultures kind of tend towards a fetishizing of, of the horrific or supernatural and, and others don't. You know, England has a really strong supernatural tradition in its literature and, and so does japan but then i've i've spoken to people here in poland and you know i'm interested in polish literature and it really doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be a concern at all you know perhaps outside of someone like stefan grabinski to produce this kind of fiction i mean there is there is something called turpism which is a kind of movement surrounding the grotesque perhaps but but it's not quite the same as horror i don't think and it might be a spurious thing to say but i have this feeling that that it's comfort and economic stability or a culturally established nationhood that produces that kind of fetish for the the horrific uh, and that maybe slightly more unstable regions don't focus on it so much somehow i mean does that sound does that sound mad to you I, I, no, I just I think, think, think of something like uh, how in in Scandinavia now there is this obsession with crime fiction and the, mm. of a of a really almost horrific sort we might say you know with like the rape of young girls and just mm. these horrible horrible things but it's become its own tradition. Yeah, no, I think that's a really a really really good point, and I wonder also if there's uh, as as part of that the more kind of developed in quotation marks uh, mm. uh, society becomes the more it's attitude towards death becomes like less communal and more kind of functional and, and scientific mm. uh, I know it's something I think we've spoken about slightly before that in in Poland there's an attitude to death and this is it like the like all souls day or or one of these kind of like crossover between like pagan and, and Christian religious practices which address the dead in a far more active participatory way than certainly happens in in the UK and it sort of feels like if you don't have those practices then the idea of of someone or something not being truly laid to rest and and returning suddenly becomes much more real because it's never at like a unconscious level it's never really dealt with and it's at a communal level it's not dealt with in the same way and so these things suddenly become there's like a there's a leftover some kind of remainder that is there and and kind of comes out in this idea of horror that's really that's really interesting and and not the way that i thought you were going to go i thought you were going to talk about the idea of death becoming not something that is suppressed necessarily but uh something that becomes such an abstraction that we can manipulate it or Mm. aestheticize it perhaps for entertainment purposes but perhaps it's part of the same thing that in in one sense it, it becomes something yeah completely abstracted that as you say can can be spoken about and i guess that is absolutely true because there's kind of certain moral mores of a society that you know you just wouldn't be able to speak about these kind of murders in like a popular entertainment (laughs) way but then also yeah that perhaps does leave out what maybe it's important is that they're coming to terms with death that they're actually the two two sides of the same coin i'm necessarily on on shaky ground uh, you know uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> trying to promulgate some vast, uh, very gen- generic cultural theory there, but but there, there does seem to be something in it, which which is why it was so surprising to me to read these things absolutely side by side, actually happening in a war zone in such a concrete way. I think I mentioned to you that it's the only other thing that came to mind in that sense was that Mexican or. Mexican and Spanish film Pan's Labyrinth. You, you said you haven't seen that, right? No, I haven't seen it, but I know about it. Mm. And yeah, I wonder because I mean, I guess that's interesting as well because that's kind of this attempt decades afterwards to kind of come to terms with what happens under Franco. Mm. I was thinking of it not in terms of how this the cultural artifact of the film is is um, synthesizing the horror of the Civil War, but more more specifically of what happens in the in the film itself so a young girl who's living through the the spanish civil war creates a kind of horrific fantasy world in her mind in order to digest the horror that is going on mm. around her so the very real horrors uh, okay. it made me think about the function of the nightmares in this book and what they seem to be doing i think i don't know i can i can imagine trying to read it as though that's exactly what's happening in this book you know if you look at the the imagery 
in that crops up in those nightmares and the kinds of figures you know it's it's all directly taken from the very real horrors of war isn't it you know there are burning bodies and snipers and the overworked figure of death (laughs) maybe the visions are not exactly coping mechanisms or a form of displacement or something like that but more of a kind of porous border between those two things so that these very real figures are are kind of bleeding into this nocturnal world and they're almost deprived of their banality in the dream state they're almost more real in that in that state than they they can be in in the daily experience of war there's a kind of like filtering of um the elements as as much as the the daytime element of the book wouldn't work without the nightmares i also wonder specifically here these nightmares you wonder how they would work as standalone things because at points they seem almost like fairy tales like overly trite on their own but in the context of the book uh, as a way of a you know a kind of a mind filtering what's going on and trying to make some sense of it or or even just kind of like getting filtering and perhaps even getting stuck at the worst elements i'm really taken by this early one in nightmare 40 where she talks about all the body all the you know decapitated heads and dismembered limbs going through the streets you know legs running without bodies and disconnected forearms waving along the roads bearing white flags and then fingers floating through the empty streets and pointing accusingly at their executioners the really difficult ability to imagine or to to see body parts not part of some kind of whole that has some type of agency and that being something that's like perhaps the the block at which you you actually can't understand it anymore and and so it kind of like recurs in this nightmare form the sniper as you mentioned in, in one of the other stories who you know gets bored of the banality of his work because it's just too easy all these things things from the everyday that that kind of creep in and and their horror is truly realized at that moment because everything else is stripped away if you wanted to see the dreams as a kind of coping mechanism they could be almost something akin to i don't know the exact term for it but uh, this therapy this sort of recreation therapy in ptsd yeah that they do for soldiers quite a lot yeah this kind of idea that they that the nightmares function as a kind of controlled or artificial recreation of of those ongoing violent episodes but i think that places the nightmares too much under the narrator's control which I, i don't really think they are i was talking actually to the same friend last night piotr who helped me with the pronunciation of the writer's name he was looking at the book and and said no is the original Arabic title for the book. He mentioned to me that the Arabic word for nightmare is kabus, which is actually a loan word from, from Latin, and it shares the same root as the word incubus. Although that's maybe just simply a point of language transmission and not particularly significant in terms of what uh, Khada Saman intended necessarily, but that the nightmare seemed to me much more akin to that idea of something, not in the sexualized sense but in something draining or a way the way in which the narrator seems to be completely at the mercy of these visions rather than the master of them i I don't know that they are doing any kind of psychological healing there's this little passage when she talks about just the effect of the nightmares in general and she says they were sprouting inside my head and climbing the walls of my brain like some sort of wicked mythical plant they were erupting from inside my head or they might have been outside as well At first I would see them only when I closed my eyes, especially after reading the stacks of old newspapers from the preceding months since the war had begun. Nightmares would assail me from time to time like seasonal plagues of locusts, but now I was seeing them constantly, even when I had my eyes open. This is sort of what made me think of this real porousness between the waking life and the dream. You know, even on a very sort of physiological level as she gets weaker and weaker, and and that all the dream serves to do is sort of emphasize and accentuate the, the banality of the waking world for by, by means of a contrast and that they don't actually function as a way of understanding the war the dreams that include the brother or the nightmares that include the brother really bear this out the brother is this figure who is really genuinely in the house at the very beginning and kind of makes his escape without the narrator 
And, you know, the narrator doesn't really blame him for this, you know, sees it as good that everyone should take their chance to escape whenever they can. But it does certainly cement her kind of loneliness within the house. And then there's these points later on in the book where the brother reappears. And at first you don't really understand how the narrative has suddenly shifted from being solely through the eyes of the narrator and suddenly is is following the brother and it becomes apparent that this is in fact another nightmare. And so, yeah, I think that there's this point of we can only imagine that she must be quite desperate for some kind of contact that she has these two neighbours one of whom dies and the other she doesn't get on with you know describes living with him as hell and so we can only imagine that she perhaps must long for be able to speak to her brother but when he returns in a kind of nightmare form it's always you know his life in prison and that he's become very very quickly is is turned into kind of like very evil character by his experience in prison the one that I really was really taken by where the brother wants to make contact with her and so somehow despite the place being inaccessible by snipers he gets to the house but can't get in and so decides to throw a letter up to her and yeah it says that he wrote the letter crumpled it up into a tight ball and then flung it into her bedroom one night but his untold dismay exploded as if it was a hand grenade See, this this idea of the kind of like impossibility of of the contact. So, yeah, it does seem like the kind of horrors that she's experiencing are being kind of like relived in this kind of fantastical, horrific form again and again in these in these nightmares. It doesn't seem to hold any therapeutic worth. Except maybe in the transcription of it. Yeah. There is a sense that that's, that's what keeps her sane. If we were to think about the sort of metafictional qualities of the existence of the manuscript within within the covers of this book it seems to me nothing really beyond that idea that the manuscript has to be what actually carries the narrator through this experience maybe just one last thing about those nightmares uh, that some of them seem to be really closely resa- related to her desire maybe mm. I'm, I'm thinking of that really great episode uh, i think it's nightmare 114 yeah with the mannequin in the shop window i mean firstly i just loved i loved that part of the novel you know it's, it's so inspired i think the way that the outbreak of the war is told from the perspective of this mannequin and she only notices it really because she suddenly has fewer admirers passing by the window and, and she can't really bask in admiration any longer. And she goes for a walk and is mistaken for a prostitute and then is eventually captured by some soldiers who use her as a kind of decoy to be shot at. And as her body is being destroyed, she has this revelation of inner peace. It says she felt she'd accomplished something something different from her work in the display window, and it gave her a sense of inner peace. Even when she discovered that she'd caught fire, she didn't grieve over what had become of her once spectacular body. Instead, she realized that inside there was something precious that she'd never been aware of throughout her entire career as a display window girl, and it was something that couldn't go up in flames. And it seemed to me that it was almost on this rare occasion, because normally it's not really like that, I would say, a one-to-one mirroring going on between what the narrator feels about her own role in the conflict. You know, she laments the fact that she's devoted her own life to educating herself and and engaging in, in intellectual debates and earning her living by her pen, which renders her now of, of no use whatsoever for her own sake in the, during the conflict. And even, just to jump in very quickly, yeah. even there's a point where she suggests that it may have been really very detrimental that, you know, she mm. kind of slightly blames herself and she says she'd been writing for these kind of left causes and, and really fighting within her written work for revolution. But she really didn't want this kind of bloodshed and, you know, really grapples with worry that had she been hopelessly naive, like, could it have happened any other way than this horrible civil war? And so, yeah, even more, because obviously she speaks a lot about the only weapon she can use being the pen, but even more than that, she suggests that maybe the pen might have been hugely problematic. Yeah. Um, 
I was just going to add that the burning of the, her library seems to be very directly reflected in the, the burning of the mannequin's body. Mm-hmm. Again, the kind of relinquishing of some received idea of one's function or, you know, the perception one has always had uh, about one's role in society changing and, you know, the assumption of a, of a new, more active or utilitarian role in society. It seemed to me that that was one of the few examples of a straightforward... I don't know, not wish fulfill some sort of distorted wish fulfillment, you know, as if we think about it in Freudian terms, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is this kind of purity of of martyrdom, of of kind of being able to give up everything. You know, she spends so much of the earlier uh, periods of the narrative talking about how her biggest fear is to lose her library. And, you know, one of the first things we learn is that she has, you know, within the house, a small fire extinguisher, which she hopes might do some good in the case of of, of a bomb or or some kind of fire within the flat. And as we find out, it's basically completely useless. Mm -hmm. But yeah, certainly, certainly this idea of kind of purification through like a, like a giving up disregard for everything that you kind of see as personal artifacts or the the things that make up who you are and i guess this is you know like a very traditional ascetic point of view but yeah i i would 100% agree that that's what's going on in this fantasy story within the within the story everything in beirut was black and gray Everything at least except for the multicoloured mountains of putrid refuse, which had taken over the pavements, covered with feverish swarms of mammoth flies, each of which was the size of a full-grown man. Rubble was strewn everywhere as far as the eye could see, shards of splintered glass, the fragmented remains of doors, ruins that had once been homes, and the tattered remnants of cherished memories. I shut my eyes again and could see Beirut's gaping wound. Open and exposed to the rain, the winds and the freezing night, it ran the length and breadth of the city, up one street and down the next. At the same time, I could hear a voice crying out from somewhere deep inside me. But even before the war, Beirut wasn't as beautiful as people imagined her to be. She'd worn a lovely, alluring veil, of course, Now, however, her disguise had been burned away by the war, and all her infirmities lay open to the public gaze. She'd known how to deck herself out in the most bewitching, brightly coloured finery, but beneath it she'd concealed cancerous growths which, once her condition was beyond repair, could only be treated by cauterisation with a red-hot iron. Foreseeing the tragic end that awaited her, the wise and discerning had cried out year after year for her to be delivered from her deadly affliction, until at last they'd shouted themselves hoarse. Although there are these elements where she struggles with the kind of idea of, like, should she simply be an academic or should she be active participant, and that's what really... I guess comes through in some ways in this uh, bit about the mannequin. For me, it came out more strongly this struggle between staying in mourning for Yusuf, her boyfriend or partner, and being able to to move beyond it. And there's yeah, this the points at which really poignantly tragic uh, for me the the points where she remembers Yusuf and the point where she remembers his death is is horrific and arbitrary. And then yeah, of course he crops up again and again there's a section towards the end where she describes the life at this point now only with Amin and talks about what hell it is to to live with this person that she actually really doesn't like in very small confines the kind of silence that envelops their relationship and it says it was the silence for those for whom all bridges have been burnt except the bridges of hope itself unlike the pregnant eloquent silence that rested upon Yusuf's bullet ridden breast it was the silence of ashes and it's yeah, this um, pregnant, eloquent silence of, of Yusuf, the, the kind of this unfinished love, I suppose that, that she has, is is really powerful. I think I don't know. It was something that I was really trying to find out in the kind of biographical research that I did, 
was to find out whether the, there was any basis in her experiences of the war. You mean, is there a real... A real, uh... a real Yusuf, yeah. And I don't think there was, because from what I understood, she was married before this and remained married afterwards. But whether there was someone else, I don't know. And of course, you know, it could be friends and, and all sorts of people that you could mourn. But I don't know, I found it, I found it really powerful these sections where she's kind of consumed with with grief even that passage that you you mentioned about these dismembered bodies kind of moving through the streets and so on that very powerful scene also culminates in in the return of of Yusuf um, at the end of that nightmare Mm. and as a figure as a body he keeps cropping up. There's a de- very definite kind of sensual and, and sexual aspect to it as well. The loss of the, the tactile in the narrator's life is, is quite powerful. She feels not only divorced from, from her intellectual life and, and subsistence, but also there's an emptiness in her life um, that, that nothing can fill, even if she escapes from this house that's under siege and i think it's that absence that that makes makes even escape seem like it might be partially futile in fact i found the ending slightly slightly mawkish maybe Mm. that it it didn't feel like that had truly been that that relationship or his absence had truly been dealt with yeah to the to the extent to which it seemed to suddenly happen at, at the end For me, rereading and making notes, there's um, a section in Nightmare 94 where she is talking to the corpse of this neighbour who has died of seemingly natural causes but perhaps accelerated by his situation. Um, And there's this long, long monologue which I think perhaps becomes slightly less interesting after the beginning. It, It sort of feels like a vehicle for Zaman's political ideas but at the beginning I found it very interesting because the the narrator says it seems that even the most profound communication of spirits can never penetrate the inner walls that keep us forever isolated from another all civil war does is make the walls visible and it's I was really curious as to whose voice exactly we're hearing here because the later section of this monologue is it really feels very much like we're hearing Saman but is this is this the voice of the narrator, you know, who's had her this kind of link with a person severed and, and so suddenly is, is like very, very alone and is completely behind this wall? Or the only thing I was thinking in terms of what happens at the end, in one way, are we dealing with someone that's come out the other side of almost some kind of like existential crisis, absolutely hasn't come to terms with this death, but has been forced by civil war to... Of like move on beyond it or is this about civil war creating something or war in general creating something that is perhaps already a function of the necessity of being a woman in arab society which is actually that it's necessary to have like an incredible individual strength that has to sever ties with others in order to you know it has to have some kind of internal strength that was the only other thing I was thinking of, that the, the kind of like existential element to certain feminist writing or the need for a strength that isn't reliant on men, I suppose, and like male power. And is that what's going on with Yusuf? Because, yeah, I found equally, I found it really difficult to come to terms with it. It felt absolutely that something unresolved was suddenly turned into almost like the language of a kind of self-help book yeah this this points where she talks about you know having lost everything she's found herself at, at the point zero she says zero was actually the largest number in my life it didn't represent loss to me it always been a point of departure and it feels you know it feels a bit like some kind of cod philosophy very out of place and like a a real break with the rhythm of the rest of the book on that very personal level, you you're reading of the way that people have to protect themselves from from one another or not rely upon each other's strength, which seems to be almost the direct opposite of her political beliefs about how society should function. We have this pet shop that functions, or that seems seems to work as a very 
straightforward metaphor or microcosm of this ongoing civil strife may maybe in a slightly heavy-handed manner but in a way that i quite quite liked but it's very it's very concrete i suppose and sometimes it's done quite poetically and sure it refers to the distant rising cries of the animals trapped in this this pet shop that has been abandoned by its owner and she describes this some sort of dissonant macabre choir shrieking out an anthem to hunger but then other times it feels quite forced particularly when she putting herself in great danger she goes there and tries to open all the doors of the cages and set the animals free but they've become so used to their captivity that they can't conceptualize freedom any longer and they eventually turn upon each other and sort of devour each other rather than recognizing that their enemies are those in power or those who control them and not their neighbors necessarily and it kind of seems like a one-to-one parallel of what you were talking about earlier with this idea of people raising walls between themselves and others and being kind of forced into a kind of animosity prevents them from recognizing the one thing that that unites them all and very explicitly that one thing for someone is is poverty isn't it Mm, yeah definitely or class let's say you know opening the book i really quite liked reading this dedication on the first page it reads like this i dedicate this novel to the workers in the typesetting room who at the moment are putting its words in order and who do so despite the storm of rockets and bombs swirling about them knowing that this book will not bear their names and so it kind of announces itself as having a very strong class awareness and the the kind of position that the the writer puts him or so, him or herself in as the as the voice of the people perhaps she's trying to bridge that that gap slightly through this dedication i mean i i don't not suggesting it's not genuine at all i, I think it probably is but there are certain things in her political attitudes that that slip through and contradict that position i think so maybe i'm thinking of the the figure of the servant who just crops up at a certain point, having never been <laughs> mentioned before, yeah. and whose plight is considered to be absolutely and without question a, a secondary kind of suffering. His his suffering is, is seems not to be clearly not to be as important as her own and maybe that's due to a kind of solipsism engendered by these particular circumstances but i think for instance it's curious that he has no name yeah it's quite funny when he is suddenly there in the book having not been mentioned despite the fact that she's been in this house and then yeah i think the the servant's death as well although it's kind of attempting to instill kind of some kind of value there's like a weird idea of like purity in poverty that is quite patronizing in sort of like an old school leftist way when she says that he dies attempting to give a banana to this pet monkey which is chained up in the garden and it says yeah after all the kindness and compassion that had led to the servant's demise were sentiments which no one but the poor and pure in heart would be courageous enough to act upon it feels very you know although it's attempting to say that there's some like essential goodness in him he is definitely other to her it feels quite patronizing again i don't know how much this is shaped by her position as as a kind of like woman and and what she's had to do in order to gain her independence but it also feels very much in the way that she describes the prostitutes in the hamra district when she says that uh, there wasn't much difference between the girls that frequented the hamra district and the mannequins that filled its display windows and so you know whether that can be a i guess it could be read as a as a criticism of society but it could also very much be read as a criticism of the girls and so yeah i think i would definitely agree that there's certain things that crop up that perhaps give lie slightly to this stated kind of like class solidarity that happens it's one of the things that detracted from my enjoyment slightly Mm. the sense of falseness that 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 creates really accentuates the self-absorption and and sense of self-importance that is really part of the narrator's voice i think i know there's an inherent what's the word superciliousness is that the word that her very position as a writer or as an intellectual 
precludes the necessity of having to account for herself somehow, despite those things that she's claiming about the uselessness of the vita contemplativa or, or whatever. I don't know. I found something quite maybe slightly indefinable in her, in the narrative voice that, that jarred with me slightly. Do you think there's, there's something to say that actually there's a slight disconnect at points where there is this this fictional character, the narrator, and then there's Saman's voice that comes through mm. her. And actually, those don't sit, the purposes don't fit together properly mm. in as much as, you know, the narrator worries about what good her writing can do and worries over this lost love and seems very tormented, conflicted. But then at other points, it feels like Saman's voice comes through much more strongly and kind of like less mediated by this fictional character and it seems much more clear in its political convictions and it creates something that actually doesn't sit together so well and begins to contradict itself and is actually I agree like um, a bit harder to get on board with the voice is slightly more that of a ideologue I, I really enjoyed the kind of like honesty of this conflicted narrator makes her far more relatable I think but also just much more likable and then sometimes this yeah there's like an ideological voice that comes through that's yeah I found a bit off-putting it seems like the polemic is always an intrusion somehow Mm. it very rarely seems to flow naturally from from the course of the narrative final question Rob how many shirts how many shirts indeed yeah <laughs> what are you thinking oh i might give it a s- oh hang on six or seven six and a half can we give it half six and a half shirts so you, you, yeah this is very distinctly above um the human chair for you yeah yeah i think um i really although yeah i mean the the human chair will really stay with me i and i really enjoyed it as a work of fiction i just found something about it very problematic Perhaps I even enjoyed reading this less. I don't know. Although maybe not for the um, for the fantastical sections. And as we've discussed, I'm really keen to read some of these shorter stories. But I think it's a yeah, it's a really good book. It's kind of awakened, you know, just having to do this research like um, a real curiosity and an area of Middle East politics that I didn't know quite as much about. And so yeah, for all those reasons, kind of coming across this new voice and and this historical record, I think it's yeah, really worthwhile. Yeah, I think it's undeniably an important book. Maybe I've come across as slightly negative about this this book in general, and that's that's my fault. There really are some wonderful passages in this book. I think that probably they couldn't have existed in isolation. They needed to be embedded within this uh, larger narrative to to work. But for some of the monotony, I'm going to knock it down to five shirts for me. This is a probably not one I'm going to go back to but one that I feel kind of enriched by having by having encountered we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast if you have any questions or comments about our conversation please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Shared's podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.